This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to Witnesses of History for the middle of June, the 17th and 18th of June. And this time it's all about Waterloo. And we start with Lieutenant Ingleby's report. He was with the Royal Horse Artillery on the 17th of June. Napoleon's marshals Ney and de Grouchy had held Wellington at Quatre Bras and defeated the Prussians at Ligny in secondary battles south of Waterloo on the 16th. Ingleby writes, We marched before daylight, passed through Nivelle, meeting many wounded on the road, and arrived at Quatre Bras, where the affair of yesterday had been. The whole army was gradually and successively arriving, and the French appeared in considerable force in our front. About noon, Lord Arthur Hill, aide-de-camp to the Duke, mentioned that the Prussians had been defeated and that their army was in retreat. In the afternoon, there appeared a considerable bustle among the enemy's troops in our front, as if preparing for a move. The whole of our infantry at this time were moving off to a position we understood to be a few miles to our rear. The cavalry formed in three lines, the hussars in the front line, the light cavalry in the second, and in the third line, the heavy cavalry. It suddenly became insufferably hot and close, and the sun became absolutely darkened by a very black cloud, while at the same time a heavy cloud of dust rising showed the advance of a very large body of cavalry coming to reinforce the enemy. They came from a direction on the right of the enemy. I had heard the same aide-de-camp say that Lord Uxbridge had positive orders not to have an affair of cavalry. The French cavalry, I have before adverted to, now advanced boldly in great force, and for some time partially under cover of a wood, until their vedettes fired on our front line. We commenced a cannonade, which was promptly returned, and as the enemy continued to advance, and I think had commenced a deployment, an affair seemed inevitable. The interest and even silence until the guns and skirmishes opened up to this moment was intense, for it was not generally known that the cavalry general was to avoid an affair. At the last moment the order was given and the whole commenced a rapid retreat in three columns and by different roads. At this instant the heavy black cloud broke with a tremendous clap of thunder and torrent of rain, we formed the left column in retreat. The road and ground became so quickly deluged with the heavy rain that was falling that it became impracticable for the French cavalry to press our column in any force. In fact, out of the road in the track of our own cavalry, the ground was poached into a complete puddle. Seeing this, and having lost the shoe from off a gun horse, I halted and put it on in spite of some skirmishers who began to press on us, but were kept at bay by our own skirmishers, forming as if to charge them. This will show how impracticable it was for them to press on this crossroad. But at this moment I could see the entire column on the main road on my right, and they apparently charging, accompanied with much cheering. This was the affair of the 7th Hussars, who were not successful, but the matter was retrieved by the lifeguards. In our column, not a man was lost. 
The retreat for the guns the whole way, and with the exception of the gun mentioned, was at a hard gallop for six or seven miles until we came upon the infantry in and getting in to position. The rain continued very heavy throughout the night. The same night, I received instructions to set out by times in the morning to find a practical road which would lead parallel to the main road and through the wood of Soigny and by the left of Brussels, so that in case of further retreats, Suhussi's brigade might retire covering the left flank of the army. I left the bivouac just at dawn and succeeded in making myself acquainted with the road practicable for our light guns, six-pounders, and cavalry. At a village I fell in with a body of four or five hundred Prussians, evidently of different corps and seemingly fugitives. However, they appeared as if collecting to march in the direction of the cannonade, which was commencing to be rather heavy. Numberless of the peasants had taken and were taking refuge in the wood of Soignier, with the women and children, cattle, pigs, sheep and whatever valuables they could carry off. I went into Brussels. The streets were wholly deserted, except by the wounded that were straggling in from the cavalry affair of yesterday, and at Quatre Bar the day before. Many were lying and seated about the steps of the houses, as if unable to proceed further in search of a hospitable. I managed to get a hasty breakfast in the Hotel d'Angleterre with a gentleman anxious for news and who proved to be Admiral Malcolm. I carried off a cold fowl for the troop, who I knew had nothing, and which I reached about half-past ten, and immediately proceeded to make my report to Suhusi Vivian. Now we have Sergeant Major Edward Cotton's report from the 18th of June. The field of Waterloo is an open, undulating plain, and on the day of the battle it was covered with splendid crops of rye, wheat, barley, oats, beans, peas, potatoes, turnips, tares and clover, some of which were of great height. There were a few patches of ploughed ground, intersected by two high roads, which branched off at Mont Saint-Jean. At break of day, all who were able began to be on the move. There were many who, from cold and fatigue, were unable to stir for some time. Some were cleaning arms, others fetching wood, water, straw, etc. from Mont St. John, my present place of abode, some trying from the embers of our bivouac to light up fires, many of which had been entirely put out by the heavy rain. At this time there was a continual but irregular popping along the line, not unlike a skirmish. Our bivouac had a most unsightly appearance. Both officers and men looked blue with cold and our long beards with our wet and dirty clothing drying upon us. It was anything but comfortable. As morning advanced and all were in motion, one might imagine the whole plain itself to be undergoing a movement. Imagine 70,000 men huddled together. The buzzing resembled the distant roar of sea against a rocky coast. And now from that afternoon, Lieutenant Winchester's report, he, he of the 92nd Highlanders. At the commencement of the action, a corps of Belgians of from 8,000 to 10,000 men were formed in line in front of the 5th Division, but soon after they were attacked and their skirmishers driven in on their line, the whole of them retired through the 5th Division and were seen no more during the action. After this, the enemy made several severe attacks on the 5th. About two or three o'clock in the afternoon, a column between 3,000 to 4,000 men advanced to the hedge at the roadside which leads from the main road near La Haye-Saint beyond the left of our position. 
Previous to this, the 92nd had been lying down under cover of the position when they were immediately ordered to stand to their arms. Major General Sir Dennis Pack, calling out at the same time, 92nd, everything has been given away on your right and left and you must charge this column. Upon which he ordered four deep to be formed and closed into the centre. The regiment, which was then within about 20 yards of the column, fired a volley into them. The enemy, on reaching the hedge at the side of the road, had ordered arms and were in fact in the act of shouldering them when they received the volley from the 92nd. The Scots greys came up at this moment, and doubling round our flanks and through our centre where openings were made for them, both regiments charged together, calling out, Scotland forever! And the Scots greys actually walked over this column, and in less than three minutes it was totally destroyed. 2,000, beside those killed and wounded, of them having been made prisoners, and two of their eagles captured. The grass field in which the enemy was formed, which was only an instant before as green and smooth as the 15 acres in Phoenix Park, was in a few minutes covered with killed and wounded, knapsacks and their contents, arms, accoutrements, etc., literally strewed all over, that to avoid stepping on either one or the other was quite impossible. In fact, one could hardly believe had he not witnessed it, that such a complete destruction could have been effected in so short a time. Some of the French soldiers who were lying wounded were crying out, Vive l'Empereur! and others firing their muskets at our men who had advanced past them in pursuit of the flying enemy. Later that afternoon, Field Captain Mercer of the Royal Horse Artillery takes up the story. A heavy column of cavalry, composed of grenadiers a cheval and cuirassiers, had just descended the plateau and were advancing upon us at a rapid pace, so there was scarcely appeared time even to get into action, and if caught in column, of course, we were lost. However, the order was given to deploy, and each gun as it came up immediately opened its fire, the two infantry squares at the same time commencing a feeble and desultory fire, for they were in such a state that I momentarily expected to see them disband. Their ranks, loose and disjointed, presented gaps of several file in breadth, which the officers and sergeants were busily employed filling up by pushing and even thumping their men together, whilst these, standing like so many logs with their arms at the recover, were apparently completely stupefied and bewildered. I should add that they were all perfect children. None of the privates, perhaps, were above 18 years of age. In spite of our fire, the column of cavalry continued advancing at a trot until separated from us by scarcely more than the breadth of the little road, but at the very moment when we expected to be overwhelmed, those of the leading squadron suddenly turning and endeavouring to make way to the rear. Confusion took place, and the whole broke into a disorderly crowd. The scene that ensued is scarcely to be described. Several minutes elapsed, before they were succeeded in quitting the plateau, during which our fire was incessant and the constant carnage frightful. For each gun, nine pairs, was loaded with a round and case shot, all of which, from the shortness of the distance, size of the object and elevation of the ground on which they stood, must have taken effect. Many, instead of seeking safety in retreat, wisely dashed through the intervals between our guns and made their way as we had seen others do, but at the greater part rendered desperate at finding themselves held, as it were, in front of the battery, actually fought their way through their own ranks 
and in the struggle we saw blows exchanged on all sides. At last the wreck of this formidable column gained protection under the slope of the hill, leaving the plateau encumbered with their killed and wounded, and we then ceased firing, that our men, who were much fatigued with their exertions, might rest themselves and be fresh against the next attack which we saw preparing. For they had not retired so far down the hill, but that the tall caps of the grenadiers of the leading squadrons were visible above the brow. The second attempt was precluded by a cloud of skirmishers, who, advancing to within a very short distance of our front, did us considerable mischief with their carbines and pistols, but their intention being evidently to draw out our fire, no notice was taken of them. At length the column, being reformed, again ascended the plateau and advanced to attack us, but this time their pace scarcely exceeded a walk, or at most a gentle trot, too many obstacles lying in their way to admit of more rapid movement without confusion. This was in our favour, experience having shown us that the inerring and destructive effects of a close fire, we allowed the leading squadrons to attain about half the distance between the brow of the slope and the road in our front before we commenced. It is scarcely necessary to say that the result was precisely similar to what has already been detailed. Again they fell into confusion, and again for several minutes were exposed to a deliberate fire of case shot within twenty yards, so that the heap of killed and wounded left on the ground before great was now enormous. With respect to the appearance of the field under the, after the action, not much can be said, for night closed in upon us very shortly, and we were too glad to lie down to think of looking about. That the ground was everywhere thick strewed with the dead and dying, men and horses, wrecks of guns and ammunition carriages, arms, caps, etc., will occur as a matter of course. I should, however, add that the heap of slaughter was far greater in front of our battery than on any other field, and so much so that Colonel Sir Augustus Fraser told me two days afterwards at Nivelle that in riding over the French position he could distinctly see where our troop, the G troop, had stood from the dark pile of bodies in front of it, which was such as even to form a remarkable feature in the field. 7pm that evening, and Captain Powell of the 1st Foot Guards continues the account. There ran along this part of the position a cart road, on one side of which was a ditch and bank, in and under which the brigade sheltered themselves during the cannonade, which might have lasted three quarters of an hour. Without the protection of this bank, every creature must have perished. The Emperor, Napoleon, probably calculated on this effect, for suddenly the firing ceased, and as the smoke cleared away, a most superb sight opened on us. A close common column of grenadiers, about 70 in front, of Le Mayon Guard, about 6,000 strong, led, as we have heard, by Marshal Ney, were seen ascending the rise, or pas de charge, shouting, Vive l'Empereur! They continued to advance till within fifty or sixty paces of our front when the brigade were ordered to stand up. Whether it was from the sudden and unexpected appearance of a corps so near them, which must have seemed as startling out of the ground, or the tremendously heavy fire we threw into them, Lagarde, who had never before failed in an attack, suddenly stopped. Those who, from a distance and more on the flank, could see the affair tell us that the effect of our fire seemed to force the head of the column bodily back. 
In less than a minute, above 300 were down. They now wavered, and several of the rear divisions began to draw out as if to, to deploy, while some of the men in their rear beginning to fire over the heads of those in front was so evident a proof of their confusion that Lord Saltoon, who had joined the brigade, having had the whole of the light infantry battalion dispersed at Hougoumont, hellowed out, Now's the time, my boys! Immediately, the brigade sprang forward. Lagarde turned and gave us little opportunity of trying the steel. We charged down the hill till we'd passed the end of the orchard of Hougoumont, where our right flank became exposed to another heavy column, as we afterwards understood of the chasseurs of the guard, who were advancing in support of the former column. This circumstance, besides that our charge was isolated, obliged the brigade to retire towards their original position. And now we come to the finale reported by Captain J. Kincaid of the Rifle Brigade. I shall never forget the scene which the field of battle presented about seven in the evening. I felt weary and worn out, less from fatigue than anxiety. Our division, which had stood upwards of 5,000 men at the commencement of the battle, had gradually dwindled down to a solitary line of skirmishers. The 27th Regiment were lying literally dead, in square, a few yards behind us. My horse had received another shot through the leg and one through the flap of the saddle which lodged in his body, sending him a step beyond the pension list. The smoke still hung so thick about us that we could see nothing. I walked a little way to each flank to endeavour to get a glimpse of what was going on, but nothing met my eye except the mangled remains of men and horses and I was obliged to return to my post, as wise as I went. I'd never yet heard of a battle in which everybody was killed, but this seemed likely to be an exception, as all were going by turns. Presently, a cheer which we knew to be British commenced far to the right and made everyone prick up his ears. It was Lord Wellington's long-wished-for orders to advance. It gradually approached, growing louder as it grew near. We took it up by instinct, charged through the hedge down upon the old knoll, sending our adversaries flying at the point of the bayonet. Lord Wellington galloped up to us at an instant, and our men began to cheer him, but he called out, No cheering, my lads, but forward, and complete our victory. This movement had carried us clear of the smoke, and to people who had been so many hours enveloped in darkness in the midst of destruction and naturally anxious about the result of the day, the scene which now met the eye conveyed a feeling of more exquisite gratification than can be conceived. It was a fine summer evening, just before sunset. The French were flying in one confused mass, British lines were seen in close pursuit and in admirable order as far as the eye could reach to the right, while the plain to the left was filled with Prussians. The enemy made one last attempt at a stand on the rising ground to our right of La Belle Alliance, but a charge from General Adams' brigade again threw them into a state of confusion, which was now inextricable, and their ruin was complete. Artillery, baggage and everything belonging to them fell into our hands. After pursuing them until dark, we halted about our two miles beyond the field of battle, leaving the Prussians to follow up the victory. Well, our last story is also from Waterloo, but from 1922, almost a hundred years later. This is from the 23rd of March, not this time of year, but it is of Waterloo. 
And it is a report by Frank Gilbert, who was clerk in the general manager's office of the London and South Western Railway on the day in which the rebuilt Waterloo Station was opened by Her Majesty Queen Mary. The rebuilding necessary because the original station had been built as a planned through station and had grown unwieldy with lots of add-ons. The through line to the city never having been built except as a tube below ground, now known as the Waterloo and City Line. The day was dull, there being a few fleeting snow squalls and a tang in the air. The crowds thronged round Waterloo as George V and Queen Mary were both expected to be present to open the station. A royal opening was only fitting in Gilbert's opinion, and he described Waterloo as a national possession. Furthermore, it would be hard to express just what Waterloo means, not only to London, but to England. All over the country, the very name of Waterloo Station conjures up a wealth of recollections, romance, pathos, sport, sorrow and happiness. Yet the crowd were slightly disappointed, as due to the indisposition of the king, only Queen Mary was able to attend. Outside the station, waiting for the Queen, were the companies, chairman, directors, general manager and chief officers, in addition to as many staff as the space permitted. The Queen's car swung through the gates, which were decorated with evergreens and bunting, and came to a halt in front of the Victory Arch. On alighting from the vehicle, the Queen was immediately greeted by the London and South West Railway's Chairman, Brigadier General Hugh Drummond, and the Deputy Chairman, Sir William Portal-Bart. The Queen, too, had people with her, including Lady Amtill, Viscount, S, the Viscount Valencia, and Colonel Clive Wigram. Then, after pleasantries had been exchanged, Miss Marion Drummond, the Chairman's daughter, approached and presented the Queen with a bouquet of red roses. She then turned to enter the station, passing on her way a guard of honour composed of ex-soldiers employed by the LNSWR and who had been decorated for valour in the First World War. After exchanging a few words with some of the officers in the guard, positioned in its front row, she progressed through the seven long ranks of men drawn up before her. As she reached the last, a cheer rose from hundreds of the London and South Western Railway staff watching in an enclosure behind. On reaching the top of the entrance stairs, the Queen broke the royal blue ribbon, stretched across it, and the station was officially open. Yet before entering, she stopped for some while to read many of the names of the 585 employees of the railway killed in the war that are listed on bronze panels set into the Victory Arch. Then, followed by directors, officers and ladies, she continued into the station and was greeted by cheers from the crowds waiting on the concourse. The station was lined with bunting and flags, and on glancing upwards towards the extensive glass roof, she exclaimed, what a splendid piece of architecture. The chairman and deputy chairman then guided her to the new buffet over which a Union Jack was draped and in one corner there was a beautifully carved and engraved roll of honour that commemorated the London and South Western Railway's war dead. The Queen then returned to the concourse to be greeted by more cheers from passengers and staff. On reaching the middle, where the carriageway was, she expressed her appreciation to the directors and chief officers present and boarded the royal car, which was waiting. It then sped away down the slope, 
passing the guard of honour which lined the route, and returned to the palace to the sound of cheers. And so, another chapter is written in the history of the great station. It is also worth pointing out, of course, that that was the last year of the existence of the London and South Western Railway, as later in the year, as a result of the Grouping Act, it became part of the amalgamated Southern Railway. Listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias. www.soundimage.org. <laughs>